Hey, my name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. I am the Chief Medical Officer of Protean Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Thank you so much for tuning in to my podcast. Uh, welcome. <laughs> I'm playing here with my dog, Mr. Jabulani. Can I do this? You let me work. <laughs> so uh, uh, today's episode, you know, we were talking the last few episodes. We were talking about like food addiction, and we're talking about like different reasons why people consume food, and a lot of that was because food has been manipulated over time. You know, I, I wanted to kind of go in a little bit more into other reasons why we consume food, and because it's important. It's so important. I think two two reels I want to do today, or excuse me, two episodes I want to do today, Justin, are based purely on on this because it's just something I, I see. You guys, I want you to know where I come up with the material in this. It's my patients, and I know some of my patients will be like, "Hey, was that me?" You know, I, I always make it into an amalgam, so I never use an actual pure patient. I do it as little. I do. I don't because the reason why is that if you see yourself in there, you know, I don't, don't want to do that to you. I want to make sure there's always this privacy. So I make an amalgam of several patients. I'll see. I'll use that as the case. But the all of these things come from real life experiences that I have in clinic and and what I know affects people. Other things that drive me with this is your comments. You know, Justin and I were just speaking a few minutes ago. Your comments mean so much to us. It helps drive what we do. It helps drive my research for this podcast, and there's nothing I love to do more than that. So please know that your comments help drive what we do here. So with that said, I made the title as being uh, Sugar and Serenity because <laughs> you know people <laughs> just put that together in your head, Sugar and Serenity. For some reason or another, we always think that eating that one thing is going to make us happy. It's going to be either the bowl of ice cream at night it's going to be the chocolate. It's going to be whatever that thing is that you do makes you feel good. Here's a question I always like to ask people. Is like, what, what's the difference between like, say you're, you're getting that, that, that bowl of ice cream. Say you got a 200 calorie thing of ice cream there. What if I just gave you a 200 calorie salad? What's the real difference? So you say, well, the taste, I hear you on that. I hear you on that, but there's more than that. I want you to know that there's so much more to this going on under the hood, so to speak, or behind the scenes inside your biochemistry. It's not just the taste of the ice cream that's making a difference. It's not just the taste of the cookie. It's not just the taste of it. It is a biological shift that's happening in your body. There's a reason why we crave sugar when we're sad. And it's important to get to the bottom of that for a bunch of reasons. The answer to it, I'm going to say this now, the answer to that question is tied up and very similar to the question of, why do I gain weight when I take an SSRI? So a lot of people out there who've taken uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or, or uh, um, antidepressants have had an experience of weight gain. I think it was 43, four, no, sorry, 48% of people taking SSRIs have weight gain, 48%. And, and one of the things Justin told me when we first started working together, we were talking about medication. We're talking about the interaction it has in your body. And I remember he was telling me that he gained 35 pounds when he started taking an SSRI. We just open those shoes for just a second. Think about this. Here you are with your mood and you are in a bad place. You're not feeling good. You need to be in a better place. Here's the medication. It'll make you feel better, but it's going to have these severe consequences. You're still going to do the medication. But now you have these consequences that last a lifetime. Many times last a lifetime. It doesn't have to, by the way. 
I'm going to go over the reasons why. I'm going to go over how this is managed, a good way to approach with it. Okay, so I'm not going to leave you with that and saying, sorry, you're stuck. You're not. You're not. Okay? So, so let's go down into this pathway of why it is that we gain weight, why it is that we crave sugar with an antidepressant, and I'm going to circle back and explain why we crave sugar when we're sad because they're very much linked up. You can already guess it. You know, I think I'm going to be dramatic right here with you guys. I'm going to create this like build up, you know, <laughs> to this magic place and be like surprise, you know, the big reveal. I've already revealed it in the beginning, didn't I? Serotonin is more than just mood. There's been all these studies coming out in the past couple of years showing that um, SSRIs don't quite work as well as we thought they did. And in previous episodes, you'll remember I've said things like, you know, depression is not always serotonin mediated. Sometimes it's going to be catecholamine mediated. It's associated with chronic fatigue. It's associated with low cortisol. There's a lot of other things that lead to depression. So, so, So please know, serotonin is not always depression and not all depression is serotonin. Serotonin plays a lot of different roles in our body. One of them is appetite control and appetite management. People who start an SSRI a lot of times become very hungry. Their appetites increase significantly because their appetite has been pushed sideways. And so they're going to be craving carbs. That's a, that's a common thing that happens with them. So there's two things here we're talking about, okay, that I brought up so far. When you're depressed, you crave carbs, you crave sugar. And when you take um, antidepressants, you gain weight with an appetite increase. What do they have in common? Serotonin. Absolutely, 100% serotonin. Why? What is that happening? Is it because serotonin is triggering your, your appetite? Sometimes with your depression. On one hand, I'm talking about how your appetite's being managed and, and affected by taking uh, an SSRI. On the other hand, I'm talking about your depression. So let me go back to the depression craving sugar a minute here. Because I'm, my goal is to try and unravel this knot. Because it is a metabolic knot. And, and many of you are parked on these SSRIs for 20 plus years. Even though they were only tested for 8 to 12 weeks when they were first released, there have been very few long-term studies on the effects of SSRIs on us and the benefit parked on it for decades and no one is sitting down and understanding you. So it's important that you and I sit down for a minute and try and unravel the knot of what's happening with you because your craving for sugar helps us understand why you're having depression. Your craving for sugar is your body telling you the real reason why you're depressed. It's just, we haven't, as humans, we haven't really learned that. We never got the manual explaining this part of it. <laughs> it's my job to explain it, okay? So, you know, so we, we want to unravel this knot. We've known since the 1980s that serotonin release in the brain is strongly associated with the foods that we eat. It's the 1980s. Isn't that interesting? Because think about this for a minute. Do you ever hear anyone talk about that? That certain foods trigger serotonin release? Nope. There's a reason for this. Carbohydrates... And their effect with insulin has a profound impact on the release rate of serotonin in the brain. In essence, carbohydrates hotwires the brain to dump serotonin out into your 
synapses. So when you eat carbohydrates, when you eat carbs, when you eat sugar, any food that turns your sugar quickly in the blood bloodstream, pizza, delicious, ice cream, cookies, cake, rice, anything like that that's your comfort food, chances are it's high in carbs. It's, chances low in the, it's high in the glycemic index, meaning it turns the sugar quickly in your bloodstream. And if we were to run the labs before and after, you'd probably see your brain and your, your brain levels of serotonin would just spike. So in essence, you're hot wiring yourself to have more serotonin in that moment. And it's only carbs that do that. Protein doesn't do that. Fat doesn't do it. Only simple carbs. Vegetables don't do it. Fruit doesn't really do it either. It's going to be more of those refined carbs, more of those refined grains, things that have sugar added to them. Those are the ones that really pump out higher levels of serotonin when you consume it. So when we look at these populations of people who crave sugar, you know, who's the most common population that crave sugar? You're going to see people who have depression. They crave sugar. That's a common symptom. Uh, people exposed to stress, for sure. Women with PMS or PMDD, absolutely. That's a big part of the practice for me. Seasonal affective disorders. Uh, and also people who are, like to quit smoking, who are quitting or are in the process of smoking cessation because nicotine does improve the release rate, um, serotonin. And then when you stop smoking, your serotonin levels are low. So that's why people crave carbohydrates and they gain weight when they quit smoking is because they created a deficit of serotonin. Okay, that's what that rebound weight gain for those guys are. Does that make sense? I hope so. So in conclusion, don't eat sugar. You're welcome. <laughs> if I said that, I would just be a regular doctor, wouldn't I? <laughs> so I would just be a regular doctor. That's horrible. I want to be better. I want you to be better than hot wiring your brain to keep it going. I want, I want it better for you. You shouldn't have to hot wire your brain to keep your mood stable. The only way to do that is to really understand the underlying process, why you're craving the sugar and how to solve for that and how to treat that directly. The first question I ask patients and I try and figure out with them is why would they be low in serotonin with their sugar cravings? Are they running their lives really hard? I'm going to start with that one first. Are they running their lives super hard? Are they not giving themselves any downtime? Are they busy? Are they, you know, just, just putting in too many hours at work and, and not giving themselves recovery? Those people... They have serotonin deficits that's secondary to their cortisol bouncing around and that extreme stress that they're under. And that's a common cause of low serotonin. And those people are going to be eating sugar. And you know that. Those are the ones that are going to be, you know, doing their candy or their cake or whatever it is they're doing or cookies at work, you know, the, the, the candy jar at work, whatever the people have out there. That's the way they're managing their serotonin. They're hot wiring their brains to get through this stressful life. Those patients I have to sit down with and really reset the way they're approaching their lives and work with their personal approach to health and self-care. So that's, that's essential in those cases. So that's them. Because in the case of those people who have that lifestyle where they're punishing themselves for a number of different reasons, whatever it is, if I were to go to them and do all the work to just replenish their core, their, their, excuse me, first replenish their cortisol. Of course, you got to do that. But, but if I was going to put all that work into replenishing their serotonin pathways, it doesn't last very long. If the lifestyle doesn't change with that person, it doesn't matter what I do therapy wise. 
they're going to keep depleting it and they're going to keep right back to square one. They're going to go right back to square, uh, to craving sugar. And that's why you go to your doctor, like I have all these sugar cravings. I don't feel right. And your doctor puts together a protocol. You know, the goal of the doctor is not just to create a protocol just to fix what they're seeing here. They have to stop the cause. Otherwise that protocol falls apart or they just keep maintaining the protocol and they never fully treat it. Sort of like people putting on SSRI, right? It's the same thing. There's no difference. So we really need to get ahead of the cause for this. Otherwise, it just keeps becoming a problem. So for those people who have a lifestyle issue, I work with the lifestyle. I do support therapies, but the support therapy has to be with the lifestyle. For those of you who have a biological deficit in your serotonin, this is for you. The next part here, this is for you. Let's go back to the sugar craving for a minute. Why are we craving sugar? Well, if we're depressed, we're craving sugar. Let's go back and look at what, what is depression in the human body. And let's look at it through the lens of the sugar craving. And let's just look at it from serotonin today. Okay, I'm going to isolate into those specific things. Because when I work someone up for depression in my practice, I never just look at it from just this, this depression is probably serotonin. I listen to you. Your doctor, the goal of the doctor is to listen to you. You deserve that. That's our job. So now I'm going to say, we've isolated this with this patient that it's probably serotonin. Okay, so this is where I'm going to be going down that road with their serotonin in this case. So where does serotonin come from? Let's start with that because that's important. You have to see this as a, as a pathway and like a river. And, and the, 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 the proteins move down that river, turning into amino acids. The amino acids get biologically changed in you. and They turn into these neurotransmitters. That's the, that's the river. So we want to see where in the river things are blocked. Why are we low in serotonin in this case? What happened? Okay. So uh, serotonin comes from tryptophan. Okay. And uh, tryptophan is amino acid in the diet. Or in the back of your head, you're probably saying, you know, Brendan, a minute ago, didn't you just say that proteins don't have this positive effect? I did. Remember, but I did say that proteins and fats don't hotwire your serotonin. Protein is the building block of so many things. And tryptophan, that amino acid, which is protein, that amino acid building block, tryptophan, that's how your brain makes serotonin. But you taking serotonin precursors doesn't always lead to an immediate surge in serotonin. It's more of a long, steady build that makes a natural level you're supposed to have. It doesn't give you that hot wired, I feel great. It's more of a gentle build, okay? That's, that's the important part of this. Based on that alone, knowing that tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin, you just say, okay, I'm just going to the store and grab some tryptophan. And I'll just take that as my supplement. It doesn't quite work that well. Now, it is part of the stream, tryptophan. It's in the river, but it's way upstream. Just because you're taking the tryptophan does not mean it's always going to get all the way to your brain. So let me first start by saying that tryptophan by itself, not very good. Tryptophan, when you take it orally, your body has to convert it to 5-hydroxytryptophan or 5-HTP. You can get 5-HTP as a supplement that is available in the States over-the-counter. 5-hydroxytryptophan is much more easily absorbed and much more easily and readily transferred over into the brain. So you're getting a better product when you're taking 5-HTP than just straight tryptophan. But then if you take 5-hydroxytryptophan or 5-HTP, is that enough? No, that's not enough because it's not moving it through the river in its pathways of converting it from tryptophan to serotonin, there's all these little gates it has to go through, these metabolic changes it has to take on. 
in order to make that metabolic change from 5-hydroxytryptophan to serotonin, you need vitamin B6 or something called pyridoxal phosphate. Now, in the States, what I prescribe is something called pyridoxal 5-phosphate, which is a more active version of it, more easily absorbed. That's what we use in practice on our end. So when I say pyridoxal 5-phosphate, please know I'm talking about vitamin B6. So pyridoxal 5-phosphate plays a massive role in serotonin production, also in dopamine production, and it plays a role with a lot of your neurotransmitters. You need pyridoxal 5-phosphate, P5P. That is essential. And in order for 5-hydroxytryptophan, to turn into serotonin, you need a lot of vitamin B6, pyridoxal 5-phosphate, a lot of it. Pyridoxal 5-phosphate is water-soluble, which means your body doesn't store it very well. Your body easily runs out of it. So you need to make sure you're staying ahead of it. It easily can become deficit in people. The reason why it becomes depleted, you know, poor diet, yes, uh, but it also becomes depleted often with women who take oral contraceptives. And women with estrogen dominance, your body burns through pyridoxal 5-phosphate much faster. So when I have a patient presented to clinic and they have depression, they have sugar cravings, you know, a lot of times I need to really be thinking about that pathway. Is it because they're taking oral contraceptives? Is it because they have high levels of estrogen and they're burning through their vitamin B6 on that pathway and there's not enough left over? to make serotonin because that's what's happening. See, when you take vitamins, they go and they help with so many different metabolic pathways. That's the role what vitamins do in your body. And vitamin B6, as I mentioned earlier, does so many different things. Your body will preferentially take that vitamin B6, pyroxyl 5-phosphate, and use it to metabolize all that extra estrogen in your body. And it'll do that at the expense of making serotonin. So now you have the serotonin deficit. Why is it that you crave sugar then? I didn't really give you an answer to that yet. I'm going to give it to you now. Why is it that you crave sugar when you're depressed? Why am I going to the serotonin pathway? When you're depressed and you're low in serotonin, if you increase your blood sugar up high enough, you're going to cause a quick transfer of tryptophan across the blood-brain barrier into serotonin. You'll create a, a spot jump in serotonin levels right away with more sugar. The more sugar you do, the better that effect will be. If I were to help you build up adequate levels of serotonin in your body, you wouldn't need it. You would have normal serotonin and you'd feel fine. You wouldn't feel the urge for it. This protocol where I'm about to talk about is how to do that. So clinically, when I have cases of depression, with sugar cravings, of course, I run my lab work. I run the serum serotonin. And I want to say, back of my mind, I'm remembering all the times I talked about using a serum serotonin panel, which is a blood test to test for serotonin in your bloodstream. I've had doctors and pharmacists be like, that's not accurate. That's not correct. It is. Okay. It is. It works. There's enough research in it. I'll cite it in, in, in the uh, uh, bottom part of the uh, video for on YouTube. You'll see it in there. I'm not always good at catching up with these citations at the bottom of it, but I do Get there, I promise you. I think I'm a week or two behind uploading my citations, but I will upload those citations in time because it's important to be able to trust what I say. Think about it for a minute. What am I doing right now? I'm asking you to trust me to look at your serotonin, manage your sugar cravings, and I'm asking you to trust me, and I'm saying, I'll just do this blood test. Does that blood test really work? In the literature, yes, and in my practice, yes. 
So I test serotonin in my patients. I see if it's low. I also run uh, serum vitamin B6. I run serum uh, peroxyl 5-phosphate levels in the body. And I do that before I initiate therapy. And I do it again a month after I started therapy. Because I want to prove what I did worked for you. I want to adjust it. Because think about it for a minute. What if I give you all these things and I got your serotonin was here. I brought it to here. Parasol 5-phosphate, I brought it here. You're beautiful. Everything's right. You're like, Brian, I'm still craving sugar. I'm still depressed. I need to go and I need to tear it down again. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, that's my ego needs to be set aside. I don't have an ego with this stuff, by the way. It's been burned out decades ago because that's not how you get results. You get results when you're the doctor and you're willing to look at what you thought was right and challenge it yourself. Because if you're not getting good results, it's not right. Okay. If you're not getting results, it's something wrong. Using labs helps me be very clear on what's working and what's not working. So whenever I can use them, I'm going to use them. When it comes to vitamin B6 and running labs for people, there's some controversy out there in the, uh, in the, 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 the American uh, um, system. There are those who advocate for a level that's below uh, 0.35 picograms per liter. I don't. I go through uh, the standard that I accept is it needs to be above 5.1. Anything above 5.1, we're pretty good. Anything below 5.1, I'm seeing as a deficit of, of uh, vitamin B6 or pyroxyl 5-phosphate in these cases. So I want to work up their levels and get them closer to 5.1. Serum serotonin, when I run that with patients, that's a tricky one because the the the, the standard in there, the reference range is in, in state side, it's uh, 31 to uh, 207 nanogram per milliliter. And that could be intimidating. She's like, well, if I come in there and I'm at 50 nanograms per milliliter, I'm at the low end of normal, but I'm normal, but I'm still depressed, Brendan. I hear you. That reference range is more what we see the averages around the country. It's not a therapeutic reference range. You're in there somewhere and say you come into my office, you're at 60 and the range again is 31 to 207 for your, for your level of serotonin. I'm going to push up towards 150 and see how you feel. You're in there somewhere. And it's important for you to find you. Someone out there is going to be better at 150. Someone out there is better at 175. My job, my role in your life, or the role of any physician you have, is to figure out what level worked for you and felt right, and then stick to it and maintain it. The other thing is we need to make sure that on our end, the doctors, is it too much? Is it too much? Am I giving you so much serotonin I'm causing a problem downstream? Because you can have serotonin 6 syndrome. You can overload someone with precursors. It can be a problem. That's why you're on our labs. And I never let it go too high. Or it could be that this dose I'm doing is ridiculous. And I've seen that. I've had patients come into my clinic on protocols. And it's like they're getting like a whisper of, of the supplement they need. And I run their lab. And their lab shows there's absolutely zero Levels getting in there. I look at how much they're taking. They're taking like one milligram and they're supposed to be taking a hundred milligrams. That happens too. So I'm always watching to make sure it's not too little and not too much. Other things we need to be careful of when we treat this population. If they're on any type of antidepressant, I take those case by case. I'm very cautious with it and careful because they're taking a medication that's already fooling around with serotonin. That doesn't mean I don't do it, but I'm very cautious with it. And you should only do that if you're doing SSRI, any kind of antidepressant. Don't take 5-hydroxytryptophan without having some supervision in there. I strongly believe in that. 
Pyrosophosphate taking vitamin B6 when you're on antidepressant, I don't see that as the same problem. Still, talk to your doctor, whoever prescribes you the SSRI, make sure they're on board with it. There's no contraindications that I've seen in my practice with it. Take-homes I want you to have from this. When you crave sugar due to a mood thing, depression, feeling low, that's a sign. And that's your brain trying to tell you something's not right. If you need to have sugar to make you feel better because you're so sad, this is this is your brain telling you it needs serotonin. And giving you sugar is only going to short-term hotwire your brain to making more of it. Long-term, it's not helping you at all. The long-term protocol is to find out exactly where the issue is and start treating it step-by-step and improving it. And again, lab work, best tool ever. I hope this helps. I truly do because I know many of you experience this. Thank you for tuning in. Please like, share, and subscribe. As I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, Justin and I love these comments because it really helps drive us and it gives us that good feedback we need to do a good job because this matters. I love doing this and I see the comments. I know this helps you. I know this affects you. I just want to make sure I keep doing a good job with it and your feedback is the way that I do that. So I will see you again soon. 